Morning, everybody. I'll be honest, there's more of you here than I thought there would be. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. As we get started, I do want to elicit some help from you all. Now, technically, I am on call because my wife, Laura, is ready to have our third baby boy. Emotionally, she was probably ready like two weeks ago, uh, but we're in that zone where like, it could happen any moment. So if one of you gets a text message or a phone call from my wife or you hear anything, just shout out at me. I'll give you my notes. You can finish preaching the sermon. <laughs> I'll run out of here. Is that fair? Uh, before we start, I also want to offer a uh, deeply heartfelt thank you to the congregation. Over the last three weeks, we've been going through the Red Envelope Project in the gym, trying to raise money to supplement the cost of the summer missions trips for our youth program. Uh, in just three short weeks, we were able to raise just shy of $35,000. Yeah, that's something to clap about. So that's... That's more money than we've ever raised before. It was a bigger ask than we ever had. And because of that, we're able to send 125 students to different places around the country and down to the DR. Um, and I can speak from firsthand experience being with these students on those trips that life transformation happens in their lives and the lives of the people that they get to interact with. So uh, you have made a direct kingdom impact with your generosity, and we want to say thank you for that. You can continue to support them through your prayers. We know that nothing happens in the kingdom of God without our prayers. Um, so we would covet prayers as they prepare to head out. There's lots of details and logistics of taking 125 students kind of around the globe. So um, please continue to pray for them as they plan for that this summer. Now, it struck me as I was preparing for this week how moved I was by the church's involvement in raising money for the students. You see, we set this big goal for fundraising, and the church rallied behind it to get it done. It made me wonder, why do big goals motivate humans? Why do we drive ourselves to a mission or a cause or an organization, a religion? What is it inside of us that is so attracted to these types of things? People, we just seem to be drawn to things that are something bigger than ourselves. And I think part of the answer is that because there's a gap between who I want to be and who I actually am. You see, even on my best days, despite how hard I try, I want to be patient with my boys. Sometimes I lose my temper. No matter how generous I want to be with my money, sometimes I still spend it selfishly. No matter how badly I want to give people the benefit of the doubt, sometimes I assume the worst from the very beginning. And that gap between who I want to be and who I actually am can draw us to these larger-than-life ideas or movements because it's these things that are bigger than us. They feel like they could overcome the areas that we struggle in or the areas that we don't really have control. Now, these ideas and these groups, they're generally good things. They can often be gifts from God. The trouble that we encounter is when we start to see them as something that has the power to save us. We begin to put our hope that organization, or that worldview, or that paradigm. We become convinced that this thing, it's going to fix the issues that we're facing. We become so devoted to the cause that our thoughts, primary energies, our efforts, they're consumed by this movement. Before we know it, even with the best of intentions, we are swept into a desperate need for that idea 
or that paradigm, that group or that organization to succeed and have some kind of victory. Because if we don't, well, if it doesn't work, things could really fall apart around here. We'd all go downhill. If it doesn't succeed, if I don't help carry the ball, what about my kids? What about my family? What about my career or our society? What about this country? If this movement fails, so does any, maybe so does all of that. Now, the great cultural exegete, Bob Dylan, noticed this human tendency in his album, Slow Train Coming. He writes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Dylan wrote this song shortly after converting to Christianity, and he articulates this human tendency and this dichotomy in an interesting fashion. As he sees it, there are really only two options. There's serving God, and then there's everything else. To sum it up in not as many words, what I'm suggesting to you is that humans are made to worship. It's just an innate part of our makeup. In fact, I don't think you have to believe in Jesus or the God that I'm speaking of to agree with me on that. You can observe it simply because we become as people so devoted, so committed to people, groups, or ideas. But what I think we've often failed to realize is we select who or what we're devoting ourselves to based upon who or what we think will save and can deliver us. And that's the key. You worship the things that you put your hope in. You worship the things you believe will save you or save your kids or could save your marriage. The majority of the time, those aren't bad or evil things. The majority of the time, those are good things, gifts given from God. The problem arises when we believe that those things can actually deliver or save us that somehow by our choosing or our commitment or our actions that we have this role to play in making the future somehow better. The things we put our hope in, we worship, full stop. Now, I am willing to wager that most of you aren't thinking you'd like to worship something or someone other than God. Now, that can sometimes make the church language about idolatry, idols seem obscure, maybe even a little bit irrelevant that maybe you come from a different religious background, maybe you aren't even sure you believe in Jesus, but more than likely, none of us are explicitly choosing to worship something other than God. What's more likely the case is we kind of get here by accident without even realizing it. I think this is kind of like the lazy river versus the wave pool. You jump in the lazy river, you just kind of end up wherever you wake up because that stem in the tube is poking your back and you can't stand it anymore. It wasn't so much that you chose to be there, you just kind of drifted there. Whereas in the wave pool, you only get someplace specific because you wanted to be there. You had to fight for it. It was intentional to claim your spot in the wave pool. You see, like that river, we often don't even realize that we're asking some new belief or system or practice to save us. As a society, and I think more specifically in this community, I believe that we are holding commitments to ideologies and movements so tightly because we fear what happens if we let this go. And to get right to the point, what I think we've unintentionally wandered into is a different type of idolatry than we've traditionally thought of. We've begun to believe that the pursuit of positive or even God-given gifts will lead us to some type of salvation, some type of relief from whatever it is that's troubling us. 
said a little differently, we believe hope can be found in something other than the God we find in the scriptures. And it's this reality, this human tendency towards unexamined devotion, towards a wandering commitment that we hear one of the patriarchs of our faith warn us against this morning. Moses, the leader of the Israelites, very conscious of the Israelite past, stands on the eve of this new generation entering into the land of Canaan. Now, this was a land that had been promised to Abraham, the forefather, and his offspring long, long ago. But there was a lot of history between that original promise and this day. And one of the unfortunate mainstays, the Israelite people, was this habit of not fully trusting God or his ability or his faithfulness to save them. They had doubts, and their doubts gave way to placing their trust and devotion in things in addition to or other than only God. So Moses begins in chapter 4, verses 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Now we can see Moses encouraging the people to examine fully, consider the God that they're attempting to follow. He's calling them out of that lazy river of faith Don't just follow along because your parents want you to or because it's been a cultural thing. Do an actual deep dive. I love how extensive he says the search should be. From one end of the earth to the other, don't leave any stone unturned because if I'm going to give myself fully to something, if I'm going to go all in on that idea and go full send, be fully devoted, it's probably wise for me to know exactly what it is I'm signing up for. I had a friend who uh, worked for a company straight out of college. He was really good at his job. He had been there about 10 years, and an opportunity arose for him to change careers a little bit. Now, before he jumped ship and traded one set of problems potentially for a new set of problems, before he kind of fell into a grass is greener moment, he decided he was going to look at all the different angles to make sure he was making a wise decision. He looked at the history of the company and how they had operated, the current leadership and how it was organized. He considered their future and what the vision was and the role he might have to play. He considered all his blind spots, all the angles, because he wanted to know before he committed to something, it was going to be a good idea and he could stick with it. Similarly, I think Moses is giving us an explicit call not to drift into our devotion. That's the human tendency that I suggested in the beginning. If we've drifted into our devotion, when push comes to shove, we tend to abandon those commitments. I had a mentor uh, that would tell me when I was in, I worked at a church out in Denver, she said I needed to be really secure, confident in my calling to ministry because she promised that there would be times, seasons that ministry was really painful and really hard and if I didn't have some kind of security and confidence, when those moments happened, I would abandon my role. That would come at great cost to myself and great cost to the people around me. You see, we don't stay committed or devoted to things that don't promise or don't deliver on what they promise us, especially if it means that we'll endure some kind of suffering. That's what Moses is alluding to. He spends the next few verses highlighting this historic faithfulness of God. Remember, these people, they were swimming in a culture that celebrated God's. All kinds of different gods. Worshiping them was as natural as eating, sleeping, and breathing. 
the standing belief was that the gods controlled what happened in the world. So the people, they worked hard to appease those gods. They wanted to elicit favor from their sacrifice and devotion. You wanted to stay in the good graces of the gods in order that life would go well for you. So there's no shortage of gods to compare with. In the light of that, Moses says, has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of a fire as you have and lived? Has any other God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? Moses quickly answers his own question like a parent who's compassionately, maybe even a little bit desperately, trying to pass on a hard-won wisdom to his kid. He says, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you of his great fire, and you heard his words from out of that fire. Now Moses says very explicitly here that the reason the people had such visceral interactions with God, the reason they saw the fire, the reason they heard his voice, so that they would know and have a confidence in who it was they were serving. These experiences, they confirmed that God was real, that he was faithful, that he was powerful. Moses is rehearsing for this new generation the character of God. It's actually in these verses that we get to see some of the bedrocks for major truths in Christian theology laid out. Now, I like to think of these like the dark chocolate nuggets in the warm brownies that you get served. I've been told that some of you like walnuts in your brownies. I've got strong opinions on that, mainly that it's disgusting. But if that's your thing, that's fine. Dark chocolate, walnuts, whatever it is, what's included here actually makes this passage really rich and special. Now, first, we can observe that God is the one acting. Notice the Israelites, they're passive in all these experiences. They haven't actually done anything to earn or contribute. They simply receive what God was doing. If you like to underline and highlight, I would try to mark these types of areas. God was the one creating humanity. God spoke. God took them out of Egypt. God tested Egypt. God did the awesome deeds before their eyes. God made them hear his voice. God showed them the great fire. This, this is the sovereignty of God because God is in control of all things. In this, we also see the supremacy of God. Moses compares the acts of God to all the other gods. The Israelite God stands heads and shoulders over those other gods. Other gods demand some kind of action on the part of the worshiper. And even then, have they accomplished things so great as this? Now, these aren't just positive vibes or run-of-the-mill blessings. These are miracles that defy natural order. Clearly, this God, he must be better than all the rest. We're also able to see that God's personal. He spoke to them to discipline them. This type of discipline means to teach them. He wanted them to know how he created the world and the absolute best way for them to live in it. The commands he gave them, the words he spoke to them, they would lead to human flourishing. This is a parent tenderly teaching their kids about the nature of the world and how to be their best selves in it. Moses goes on to say, because God loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength 
to drive out before you nations that were greater and stronger than you, and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. God does these really incredible deeds for the Israelites. His personal nature is highlighted in how present he is with them. His presence brought them out of Egypt. It was his presence that drove out those nations that were bigger, stronger, more organized. You see, God is deeply concerned with the day-to-day condition of the Israelite life. And finally, God is faithful and unchanging. God was doing these things contingent on nothing more than the fact that he loved their ancestors and made a covenant with them. He didn't act in these amazing ways because the Israelites earned it or achieved something. God did this because his character is good and he's faithful. He keeps his promises. That promise he made to Abraham long ago to deliver the descendants to this land, that would be fulfilled no matter the obstacles. So Moses continues writing, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God gives you for all time. Finally, Moses offers what he sees as the only logical response to these truths. Take them to heart. Write them upon your inner being. Know them. Make them part of who you are. Because as you keep God's faithfulness and his goodness at the center of your thoughts, you'll be able to keep the commands and the decrees of God. You'll have a confidence and a trust in God. His commandments and his invitations are good. And when we operate in God's ideal, we get to experience the fullness of his goodness. You see, because of God's unwavering faithfulness to save us, we are free to be faithful to only God. That's the big idea. Because of God's faithfulness to save, we are free to be faithful to God. Moses, he references the past. He references this present moment. He's even talking about the future in this section. He's again laying out this consistency of God's character. And because of the enduring commitment of God, the Israelites have the freedom to trust God with their behaviors and their actions. And for those that do, they'll be blessed with a long life in this promised land. Now Moses knows the history of these people, and I think we can agree, they're not that different from us. We all have a tendency to drift in our devotions. We can start to place our hopes in things that we can see and touch and control. And eventually that well-intentioned devotion begins to take priority over devotion to our Creator. Believing that these things can save us, deliver us from our fears, we begin to worship things other than God. I think this passage can also serve as a powerful apologetic. You see, Moses doesn't appeal to a history that was unknown to the Israelites. He's asking them about their immediate past. This is like asking, what did you have for breakfast? These are things they would absolutely remember. The people would instantly know whether they had actually seen fire and heard God's voice. I think this should add to our confidence. These appeals to historic evidence, to historical experience, they can be encouraging. Because the authors of this text, they're trying to establish its truth, giving it credibility. The New Testament, it actually takes a similar approach. We see after Jesus' death and resurrection that the disciples, they strengthen their commitment to following Jesus' teachings. 
If Christ did not rise from the dead, those men and women would not have carried forward the ideals of Jesus. They certainly would not have died for him if they knew that to be false. And we can see in these two scriptures this pattern of how God communicates. There's an appeal and an anchoring of the invitation to devotion and worship in true historical events. It's no fairy tale. It's no hocus pocus. The appeal to historical veracity should build our confidence in the truths that are being prescribed and the things God's commanding us. So if you've been questioning which God to follow, is it Jesus, Allah, Buddha, something else? I'd suggest that this fact, this historical appeal, goes in the bucket of reasons to trust Christ. You see, we are free to be faithful to God with no idols or worries about our salvation because of his faithfulness to save us. God has a proven history and track record of his good character. I don't have to worry or fight these battles because God will always win out. He always has Because of God's faithfulness to always rescue and save his people, me, I am freed up to be fully faithful to God. I can lay down my worries, can lay down my struggling to preserve the future because of the God is the one who takes up the battles. And I wonder, how could we respond and take Moses' words to heart? Well, I'd suggest we start by considering what we may have devoted ourselves to other than God. Is there an idea or a paradigm, a political party, a job, a lifestyle, a goal that we've started to believe will deliver us in some way or make all the difference in our future, the future of our family, the future of this country? Ask God to help reveal these things to you. Now, I'm not suggesting we dismiss any of these things. Many of them are good, but we should put them in their rightful place. Recognize they are God-given gifts but not God's in themselves to be worshiped or to take our primary energies. If we need to, let's examine the God of the scriptures and see if he stands up against other worldviews, other religions, other approaches to life. You should only follow this stuff if it's true, if you believe it, if it's real and better than all the alternatives. Because the commitment to following Jesus, it's not always easy. And if you haven't chosen this intentionally, you're going to struggle with it at some point. Moses talking to this new generation of Israelites, people chosen by God on the eve of their entrance into the land that had been promised to their forefathers. And they anticipate facing some difficult enemies in the land of Canaan. And we know that they are like us, tempted by competing ideas with the people and cultures that will surround them. They're drawn to these ideas and claims that are in opposition to what God has offered. So Moses, he's sharing absolute, unmovable truths to firmly anchor the reality of God's goodness into the culture and fabric of this community. One of the best ways that we can stay committed to this is to do as Moses did, rehearse God's faithfulness, his faithfulness in history, his faithfulness in our family, his faithfulness in our personal life. Repeat those stories to yourself. Repeat them to your kids. Repeat them to your community. Because as we rehearse these realities, they integrate themselves into the fabric of our lives. We begin to know they are true even when we face competing ideas. It becomes almost like a muscle memory for us. In fact, this is why we sing each Sunday at church. We're rehearsing for one another and for our hearts deep truths about who God is and his goodness. That's also why it's important for you to sing even if you think you're bad at it because you don't just sing for yourself, you're actually singing for the person next to you. 
These rehearsals equip our faith, our confidence in God's goodness. That helps me each week as I face new challenges and new trials to remember who it is that I'm serving and how good he really is. So this week, I'd suggest take some time to confess to God the areas that you've put your hope. Share your fears with him. Express your desire to make him the sole object of your devotion and worship. And if you're like me, I've got some habits that I've built around worshiping stuff other than God. We've probably carried those for a long time. The antidote is to imitate Moses and rehearse God's faithfulness. The regular rehearsal writes the truths on our heart, our culture, our way of interacting with the world. And I'd suggest coming up with three specific stories. First, what's one story in scripture that highlights God's faithfulness and that moves you? Second, what's one story in your family's history that highlights God's faithfulness, his goodness, his sovereignty? And finally, what's one story in your own life that highlights God's personal presence and his faithfulness to rescue you? Write these stories down, read them, speak them frequently. If you've got kids in your life, your own children, nieces, nephews, grandchildren, share these stories with them. Help them know how God has shaped you, how he's built your faith. Help build their faith by sharing how your faith was built. If you've got parents who are Christians or spiritual mentors in your life, ask them of, of their stories. Build your faith by listening, sharing, receiving the stories. In fact, it's in that spirit that I'd like to invite you to send the stories of God's faithfulness into the podcast or email them to me. We can keep it anonymous if that's helpful, but over the coming weeks, I would love to share with our church family the stories of God's faithfulness. These proclamations of God's goodness, they build up our faith as a community. We're strengthened when they are shared because they defeat fear and lies that we can so easily believe. And if you at all feel convicted by this today, take heart because God is faithful even when you aren't. Your actions, your behaviors, your commitments, they don't obligate God to do anything. His goodness, it doesn't depend on your devotion. God will remain faithful to his promise to you to be a rescuer, a defender, your savior. He is supreme overall, he is sovereign, he is personal, and he is always, always faithful. So in response to God's faithfulness, we are free to abandon our attempts to save ourselves by any means other than clinging to Christ. He will do the work. We don't have to try and save the future to save our family, to save the community or our country. God is fighting those battles, and I can live free of fear because God is faithful. I can devote my energies to faithfulness above all else because God's taking care of the other things. Now, I mentioned in uh, the opening that my wife, Laura, is pregnant and due in the coming weeks. And with my last two boys on the night before they were born, I wanted to capture and share some of my emotions and feelings with them, so I wrote them each a letter. For Tucker, I explained how excited I was to become a dad for the first time. To my second son, Cooper, I told him about all the prayers that were poured over him asking for a miracle of healing. For my third son, still considering what it is that I want to share with him, I decided to write them these letters because I wanted them to know the context of their birth. I wanted them to not forget 
that they mean to their mother and me, that they would never need to question the depths of our love and how they fit into our family. But bigger than that, I wanted my sons to have their own confidence in God's faithfulness to our family, that they would see the truth of God's goodness expressed to us personally. And in response, they could be free to walk away from devotion to anything other than their good creator. Instead, they are, we all are free to be faithful to the one who always has, always will keep his promise to save. Now, in just a second, we're going to sing songs about the truth of God, rehearsing them to one another. And if you find yourself placing hope in something other than God, whether intentionally or unintentionally, right now is the time to come forward and pray for freedom.